0: This is a narrated portion of the Man of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. To follow an article used to be an assigned article at Trinity Ministerial Academy in Montville, New Jersey. It is only the first part of that article. The following reading is taken from The Person and Work of Christ by Benjamin Warfield. The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Introduction It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. In the accounts which the evangelists give us of the crowded activities which filled a few years of his ministry, the play of a great variety of emotions is depicted. It is nevertheless not proved easy to form a universally acceptable conception of our Lord's emotional life. Not only has the mystery of the Incarnation entered in as a disturbing factor, The effect of the divine nature on the movements of the human soul brought into personal union with it has been variously estimated. Differences have arisen also as to how far there may be attributed to a perfect human nature movements known to us only as passions of sinful beings. Two opposite tendencies early showed themselves in the Church, one derived ultimately from the ethical ideal of the stoa, which conceive moral perfection under the form of apatheia, naturally wished to attribute this ideal to Jesus as a perfect man. The other, under the influence of the conviction that in order to deliver men from their weaknesses, the Redeemer must assume and sanctify in his own person all human patha, as naturally was eager to attribute to him in its fullness every human pathos. Though in far less clearly defined forms, and with a complete shifting of their bases, both tendencies are still operative and men thought of Jesus. There is a tendency in the interest of the dignity of his person to minimize. And there is a tendency in the interest of the completeness of his humanity to magnify his affectional movements. The one tendency may run some risk of giving us a somewhat cold and remote Jesus, whom we could scarcely believe to be able to sympathize with us in all our infirmities. The other may possibly be in danger of offering us a Jesus so crassly human as scarcely to command our highest reverence. Between the two, the figure of Jesus is liable to take on certain vagueness of outline and come to lack definiteness in our thought. It may not be without its uses, therefore, to seek a starting point for our conception of his emotional life and the comparatively few affectional movements which are directly assigned to him in the gospel narratives. Proceeding outward from these, we may be able to form a more distinctly conceived and firmly grounded idea of his emotional life in general. It cannot be assumed beforehand, indeed, that all the emotions attributed to Jesus in the evangelical narratives are intended to be ascribed distinctly to his human soul. Such is no doubt the common view, and it is not an unnatural view to take as we currently read narratives, which, whatever else they contain, certainly present some dramatization of the human experience of our Lord. No doubt the naturalness of this view is its sufficient general justification, only it will be well to bear in mind that Jesus was definitely conceived by the evangelists as a two-natured person, and that they made no difficulties with his duplex consciousness. In almost the same breath, they represent him as declaring that he knows the Father through and through, and of course also, all that is in man, and the world which is the theater of his activities and that he is ignorant of the time and the occurrence of a simple earthly event which concerns his only work very closely. That he is a meek and lowly in heart, and yet at the same time the lord of men by their relations to whom their destinies are determined. No man comes to the Father but by me. In the case of a being whose subjective life is depicted as focusing in two centers of consciousness, We may properly maintain some reserve in ascribing distinctively to one or the other of them mental activities which, so far as their nature is concerned, might properly belong to either. The embarrassment in studying the emotional life of Jesus arising from this cause, however, is more theoretical than practical. Some of the emotions attributed to him in the evangelical narrative are, in one way or another, expressly assigned to his human soul. Some of them, by their very nature, assign themselves to his human soul. With reference to the remainder, just because they might equally well be assigned to the one nature or the other, it may be taken for granted that they belong to the human soul, if not exclusively, yet along with the divine spirit and they may therefore very properly be used to fill out the picture. We may thus, without serious danger of confusion, go simply to the evangelical narrative and pass in and review the definite descriptions of specific emotions to Jesus and his records, find in them a conception of his emotional life, which may serve as a starting point for a study of this aspect of our Lord's human manifestation. The establishment of the starting point is the single task of this essay. No attempt will be made in it to round out our view of our Lord's emotional life. It will content itself with an attempt to ascertain the exact emotions which are expressly assigned to him in the evangelical narrative, and will leave their mere collocation to convey its own lesson. We deceive ourselves, however, if their mere collocation does not suffice solidly to ground certain very clear convictions as to our Lord's humanity, and to determine the lines on which our conception of the quality of his human nature must be filled out. Number 1. Compassion and Love The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers, as of going through the land doing good, X. 11.38, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. The term employed to express it was unknown to the Greek classics and was perhaps a coinage of the Jewish dispersion. It first appears in common use in this sense, indeed, in the Synoptic Gospels, where it takes the place of the most inward classical word of this connotation. The divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. It includes, that is to say, the two parts of an internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence, It is the internal movement of pity which is emphasized when our Lord is said to be moved with compassion, as the term is sometimes excellently rendered in the English versions. In the appeals made to his mercy, a more external word is used. But it is this more internal word that is employed to express our Lord's response to these appeals, to petitioners besought him to take pity on them. His heart responded with a profound feeling of pity for them. His compassion fulfilled itself in the outward act, but what is emphasized by the term employed to express the Lord's response is in accordance with his very derivation, the profound internal movement of his emotional nature. This emotional movement was aroused in her Lord as well by the sight of individual distress Mark one forty one Matthew twenty thirty four, Luke seven verse thirteen is by the spectacle of man's universal misery, Mark six thirty four, Mark eight verse two, Matthew nine thirty six, Matthew fourteen fourteen, and Matthew fifteen thirty two, the appeal of two blind men that their eyes might be open, Matthew twenty verse thirty four, the appeal of a leper for cleansing, Mark one forty one. Though there may have been circumstances in this case which called out Jesus' reprobation, verse forty three. Set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity, as did also the mere sight of a bereaved widow, wailing by the bier of her only son as they bore him forth to burial, though no appeal was made for relief, Luke 7, verse 13. The ready spontaneity of Jesus' pity is even more plainly shown when he intervenes by a great miracle to relieve temporary pangs of hunger. I have compassion on, or better, I feel pity for, the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their home, they will faint and away. And some of them are come from far. Mark 8, 2. Matthew 15, 32. The only occasion on which Jesus is recorded is testifying to his own feeling of pity. It was not merely the physical ills of life, however, want and disease and death, which called out our Lord's compassion. These ills were rather looked upon by him as themselves rooted in spiritual destitution, and it was his spiritual destitution which most deeply moved his pity, because and the effects are indeed very closely linked together in the narrative, and it is not always easy to separate them. Thus we read in Mark 6 verse 34, And he came forth and saw a great multitude, and had compassion on them, for better, he felt pity for them, because they were a sheep not having a shepherd, and he taught them many things. But in a parallel passage in Matthew 14 verse 14 we read, And he came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on, or felt pity for them, and he healed their sick. We must put the two passages together to get a complete account, their fatal ignorance of spiritual things, their evil case under the dominion of Satan, and all the effects of his terrible tyranny are alike the object of our Lord's compassion. In another passage, Matthew 9, verse 36, the emphasis is thrown very distinctly on the spiritual destitution of the people as the cause of his compassionate regard. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were distressed and scattered, as sheep not having a shepherd. This description of the spiritual destitution of the people is cast in very strong language. dear compared to sheep which have been worn out and torn by running here and there, through the thorns with none to direct them, and have now fallen helpless and hopeless to the ground. The sight of their desperate plight awakens our Lord's pity and moves him to provide a remedy. No other term is employed by the New Testament writers directly to express our Lord's compassion, But we read elsewhere of its manifestations in tears and sighs. The tears which wet his cheeks when looking upon the uncontrolled grief of Mary and her companions. He advanced with heart swelling with indignation at the outrage of death. To the conquest of the destroyer. John 11.35 Distinctly tears of sympathy. Even more clearly, his own unrestrained welling over Jerusalem and his stubborn unbelief was the expression of the most poignant pity. Oh that you had known this day even you the things which belong unto your peace Luke nineteen forty one. The sight of suffering drew tears from his eyes. Obstinate unbelief convulsed him with uncontrollable grief. Similarly, when a man afflicted with dumbness and deafness was brought to him for healing we are only told that he sighed. Mark seven thirty four. But when the malignant unbelief of the Pharisees was brought home to him, he sighed from the bottom of his heart. Mark 8.12 Obstinate sin, comments sweet appropriately, drew from Christ a deeper sigh than the sight of suffering. Luke 7.34 John 13.20 A sigh in which anger and sorrow both had a part. We may at any rate place a loud welling over the stubborn unbelief of Jerusalem and the deep sighing over the Pharisees' determined opposition side by side as exhibitions of the profound pain given to our Lord's sympathetic heart by those whose persistent rejection of him required at his hands his sternest reprobation. He sighed from the bottom of his heart when he declared, there shall no sign be given this generation. He wailed aloud when he announced, A day shall come upon you when your enemies shall dash you to the ground. It hurt Jesus to hand over even hardened sinners to their doom. It hurt Jesus because Jesus' prime characteristic was love, and love is the foundation of compassion. How close to one another the two emotions of love and compassion lie may be taught us by the only instance in which the emotion of love is attributed to Jesus in the synoptics mark ten twenty one Here we are told that Jesus, looking upon the rich young ruler, loved him and said to him, "One thing you lack: It is not the love of complacency which is intended but the love of benevolence, that is to say, it is a love not so much that finds good as that intends good, though we may no doubt allow that love of compassion is never. let us rather say seldom absolutely separated from love of approbation." That is to say, there is ordinarily some good to be found already in those upon whom we fix our benevolent regard. The heart of our Savior turned yearningly to the rich young man and longed to do him good. And this is an emotion, we say, which especially in the circumstances depicted is not far from simple compassion. It is a characteristic of John's gospel that it goes with simple directness always to the bottom of things. Love lies at the bottom of compassion. And love is attributed to Jesus only once in the synoptics, but compassion? Often. While with John the contrary is true, compassion is attributed to Jesus not even once, but love often. This love is commonly the love of compassion, or rather, let us broaden it now and say the love of benevolence. But sometimes it is the love of sheer delight in its object. Love to God is, of course, the love of pure complacency. We are surprised to note that Jesus' love to God is only once explicitly mentioned in John fourteen thirty one, but in this single mention, it is set before us as the motive of his entire saving work, and particularly of his offering of himself up. The time of his offering is at hand, and Jesus explains, "I will no more speak much with you, for the prince of this world comes, and he has nothing in me, but." I yield myself to him that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. The motive of Jesus' earthly life and death is more commonly presented as love for sinful man. Here it is presented as love and obedience to God. He had come to do the will of the Father, and because he loved the Father his will, he will do up to the bitter end. He declares his purpose to be, under the impulse of love, obedience up to death, yea, the death of the cross. The love for man which moved Jesus to come to his succor in a sin and misery was, of course, a love of benevolence. It finds its culminating expression in the great words of John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do the things which I command you. Rather, an illuminating definition of friends, by the way, especially when it is followed by, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Friends, it is clear in this definition, are rather those who were loved than those who love. This culminating expression of his love for his own, by which he was sustained in his great mission of humiliation for them, is supported, however, by repeated declarations of it in the immediate and wider context. In the immediately preceding verses, for example, it is urged as a motive and norm of the love, spring of obedience, which he seeks from his disciples. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Even as my Father has loved me, I also have loved you, abide you in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be fulfilled. Just as my commandment, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, John fifteen eight to 12 As his love to the Father was the source of his obedience to the Father, and the living spring of his faithfulness to the work which had been committed to him, So he declares that the love of his followers to him, imitating and reproducing his love to them is to be the source of their obedience to him, and through that of all the good that can come to human beings, including as the highest reach of social perfection, love for one another. Self-sacrificing love is thus made the essence of the Christian life and is referred for its incentive to the self-sacrificing love of Christ himself. Christ's followers are to have the same mind in them which was also in Christ Jesus. The possessive pronouns throughout this passage, abide in my love, in my love, in his, the Father's love, are all subjective. So that throughout the whole, it is the love which Christ bears his people which is kept in prominent view as the impulse and standard of the love he asks from his people. This love has already been adverted to more than once in the wider context Chapter thirteen, one thirty-four, 34, and chapter 14, verse 21, in the same spirit in which it is here spoken of, its greatness is celebrated. He not only loved his own which were in the world, but loved them utterly. Chapter 13, verse 1. It is presented as a model for the imitation of those who would live a Christian life on earth, even as I have loved you. Chapter 13, verse 34. It is propounded as the Christian's greatest reward, and I will love him and manifest myself unto him, chapter 14, verse 21. The emotion of love is attributed to Jesus, and the narrative of John is not confined, however, to these great movements. His love to his Father, which impelled him to fulfill all his Father's will in the great work of redemption, and his love for those whom, in fulfillment of his Father's will, he had chosen to be the recipients of his saving mercy, laying down his life for them. there are attributed to him also those common movements of affection which bind man to man in the ties of friendship. We hear of particular individuals whom Jesus loved. Demeaning, obviously, being that his heart, knit itself to theirs in a simple human fondness. The term employed to express his friendship is prevalently that high term which designates a love that is grounded in admiration and fulfills itself in esteem. But the term which carries with it only the notion of personal inclination and delight is not shunned. We are given to understand that there was a particular one of the Lord's most intimate circle of disciples on whom he especially poured out his personal affection. This disciple came to be known as, by the way of eminence, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Though there are subtle suggestions that the phrase must not be taken in too exclusive a sense, both terms, the more elevated and the more intimate are employed to express Jesus' love for him. The love of Jesus for the household at Bethany, and especially for Lazarus, is also expressly intimated to us, and it also by both terms, though the more intimate one is tactfully confined to its affection for Lazarus himself. The message which the sisters sent Jesus is couched in the language of the warmest personal attachment. Behold, he whom you love is sick. And the sight of Jesus' tears calls from the witnessing Jews an exclamation which recognizes in him the tenderest personal feeling. Behold how he loved him. But when the evangelist widens Jesus' affections to embrace his sisters also, he instinctively lifts the term employed to the more deferential expression of friendship. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus' affection for Mary and Martha, while deep and close, had nothing in it of an amatory nature, and the change in the term avoids all possibility of such a misconception. Meanwhile, we perceive our Lord the subject of those natural movements of affection which bind the members of society together in close fellowship. He was as far as possible from insensibility to the pleasures of social intercourse, Matthew eleven nineteen 19, and the charms of personal attractiveness. He had his mission to perform and he chose his servants with a view to the performance of his mission. The relations of the flesh gave way in his heart to the relations of the spirit. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 12.50 And it is those who do the things which he commands them whom he calls his friends. John 15, verse 14 But he also had the companions of his human heart, those to whom his affection turned in a purely human attachment. His heart was open and readily responded to the delights of human association, and bound itself to others in a happy fellowship secondly indignation and annoyance the moral sense is not a mere faculty of discrimination between the qualities which we call right and wrong which exhausts itself and their perception is different the judgment it passes are not merely intellectual but what we call moral judgments that is to say they involve approval and disapproval according to the qualities perceived It would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean by a moral being is a being perceptive of the difference between right and wrong, and reacting appropriately to right and wrong perceived as such. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such, and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. We should know accordingly, without instruction, that Jesus, living in the conditions of this earthly life under the curse of sin, could not fail to be the subject of the whole series of angry emotions. And we are not surprised that even in the brief and broken narratives of his life experiences, which have been given to us, there have been preserved records of the manifestation and word and act of not a few of them. It is interesting to note in passing that it is especially in the Gospel of Mark, which rapid and objective as it is in its narrative is a channel through which has been preserved to us a large part of the most intimate of the details concerning our lord's demeanor and traits which have come down to us that we find these records it is mark for instance who tells us explicitly in chapter 3 5 that the insensibility of the jews to human suffering Exhibited in a tendency to put ritual integrity above humanity, filled Jesus with indignant anger. A man whose hand had withered, met with in a synagogue when Sabbath afforded a sort of test case. The Jews treated it as such and watched Jesus whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. Jesus accepted the challenge. Commanding a man to rise in the midst of the assemblage, he put to them the searching question, generalizing the whole case. Is it lawful to do good, or to do evil on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But, says the narrative, they kept silent. Then Jesus' anger rose. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their heart. What is meant is not that his anger was modified by grief, his reprobation of the hardness of their hearts was mingled with a sort of sympathy for men sunk in such a miserable condition. What is meant is simply that the spectacle of their hardness of heart produced in him the deepest dissatisfaction, which passed into angry resentment. Thus the fundamental psychology of anger is curiously illustrated by this account. For anger always has pain at its root and is a reaction of the soul against what gives it discomfort. The hardness of the Jew's heart vividly realized hurt Jesus, and his anger rose in repulsion of the cause of his pain. There are thus two movements of feeling brought before us here. There is the pain which the gross manifestation of the hardness of heart of the Jews inflicted on Jesus, and there is the strong reaction of indignation which sprang out of this pain. The term by which the former feeling is expressed has as its basis a simple idea of pain, and is used in the broadest way of every kind of pain, whether physical or mental, emphasizing, however, the sensation itself, rather than its expression. It is employed here appropriately in a form which throws an emphasis on the inwardness of the feeling of the discomfort of heart produced in Jesus by the sight of man's inhumanity to man. The expression of this discomfort was in the angry look which he swept over the unsympathetic assemblage. It is not intimated that the pain was abiding, the anger evanescent. The glance in which the anger was manifested is represented as fleeting in contrast with the pain of which the anger was the expression. But the term used for this anger is just a term for abiding resentment, set on vengeance. Precisely what is ascribed to Jesus in, in this passage is that indignation at wrong perceived as such, wishing and intending punishment to the wrongdoer, which forms the core of what can be called vindicatory justice. This is a necessary reaction of every moral being against perceived wrong. On another occasion, Mark ten fourteen pictures Jesus to us as moved by a much lighter form of the emotion of anger. His disciples. Doubtless, with a view to protecting him from needless drafts upon his time and strength, interfered with certain parents who were bringing him their babies. Luke, eighteen, fifteen, that he should touch them. Jesus saw their action, and we are told was moved with indignation. The term employed here expresses originally physical, such, for example, as felt by a teething child, and then mental. Matthew, twenty-first, twenty-four. Matthew twenty one fifteen, Matthew twenty six verse eight, Mark ten forty one, Mark fourteen four, Luke thirteen fourteen, also 1 Corinthians seven eleven, irritation. Jesus was irritated, or perhaps we may better render was annoyed, vexed at his disciples. And so the term also suggests he showed his annoyance, whether by gesture or tone or the mere shortness of his speech. Let the children come to me, forbid them not. Thus, we see Jesus as he reacts with anger at the spectacle of inhumanity, so reacting with irritation at the spectacle of blundering misunderstanding, however well meant. Yet another phrase of anger emotion is ascribed to Jesus by Mark, but in this case, not by Mark alone, Mark 14 verse 3 tells us that on healing a leper, Matthew 9 verse 30, that on healing two blind men, Jesus straightly, strictly, sternly charged them. As our English version struggles with the term in an attempt to make it describe merely the tone and manner of its injunction to the beneficiaries of his healing power, not to tell of the cure's wrought upon them. This term, however, does not seem to mean in its ordinary usage, to charge, to enjoin, however straitly or strictly, but simply to be angry at, or, since it commonly implies that the anger is great, to be enraged with. Or perhaps, better still, since it usually intimates that the anger is expressed by audible signs, to rage against. If we are to take it in its customary sense, therefore, What we are really told in these passages is that Jesus, when he had raged against the leper, sent him away. That he raged against the blind man, saying, See that no one know it. This rage is to be supposed with our English versions to have expressed itself only in the words recorded. The meaning would not be far removed from that of the English word bluster in its somewhat rare transitive use, as for example when an old author writes, He meant to bluster all princes into perfect obedience. The implication of boisterousness, and indeed of empty noise, which attends the English word, however, is quite lacking from the Greek. The rage expressed by which is always thought of as very real. What it has in common with bluster is thus merely a strong minatory import. The Vulgate Latin accordingly cuts the knot by rendering it simply threatened, and is naturally followed in this by those English versions Wycliffe. Rhymes. Which depend on it. Certainly Jesus is represented here as taking up a menacing attitude and threatening words are placed on his lips. See that you say nothing to any man. See that no one know it. A form of speech which always conveys a threat. But threat can scarcely be accepted as an adequate rendering of the term whether in itself or in these contexts. When Matthew tells us, and he was enraged at them saying, the rage may no doubt be thought to find its outlet in the threatening words which follow, but the implication of Mark is different. Enraging at him, or having raged at him, he straightway sent him forth. When it is added and says to him, see that you say nothing to any one," a subsequent moment in the transaction is indicated. How our Lord's rage was manifested we are not told. And this is really just as true in the case of Matthew as in that of Mark. To say he was enraged at them saying threatening words is not to say merely he threatened them. It is to say that a threat was uttered and that this threat was a suitable accompaniment of his rage. The cause of our Lord's anger does not lie on the surface in either case. The commentators seem generally inclined to account for it by supposing that Jesus foresaw that his injunction of silence would be disregarded. But this explanation, little natural in itself, seems quite unsuitable to the narrative in Mark where we are told, not that Jesus angrily enjoyed the leper to silence, but that he angrily sent him away. Others accordingly seek the ground of his anger and somewhat displeasing to him in the demeanor of the applicants for his help, in their mode of approaching or addressing him and erroneous conceptions with which they were animated. And the like Klosterman imagines that our Lord did not feel that miraculous healing lay in the direct line of his vocation, and was irritated because he had been betrayed by his compassion into undertaking them. Volkner goes the length of supposing that Jesus resented the over reverential form of the address, of the leper to him, or the principle laid down in Revelation 19.10, See you do it not. I am a fellow servant with you. Even Kyle suggests that Jesus was angry with the blind man because he addressed him openly as son of David, not wishing this untimely proclamation of him as Messiah on the part of those who held him as such only on account of his miracles. It is more common to point out some shortcomings in the applicants. They did not approach him with sufficient reverence or with sufficient knowledge of the true nature of his mission. They demanded their cure too much as a matter of course or too much as if from a mere marvelmonger, and in the case of the leper, at least, with too little regard to their own obligations. A leper should not approach a stranger, certainly should not ask or permit a stranger to put his hand upon him, especially should he not approach a stranger in the streets of a city, Luke 5.12, and very particularly not in a house, Mark one forty three. He put him out. Above all, if it were, as it might well be here, a private house, That Jesus was indignant at such gross disregard of law was natural and fully explains his vehemence in driving the leper out and sternly admonishing him to go and fulfill the legal requirements. The variety of explanation is the index of the slightness of the guidance given in the passages themselves to the cause of our Lord's anger, but it can throw no doubt upon the fact of that anger, which is directly asserted in both instances and must not be obscured by attributing to the term by which it is expressed. Some lighter significance. The term employed declares that Jesus exhibited vehement anger, which was audibly manifested. This anger did not inhibit, however, the operation of his compassion, Mark one forty one, Matthew nine twenty seven, but appears in full manifestation of its accompaniment. This may indicate that it is lay outside the objects of his compassion and some general fact and nature of which we may possibly learn from other instances. The same term occurs again in John's narrative of our Lord's demeanor at the grave of his beloved friend Lazarus, John 11, 33 and 38. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, or rather wailing, for the term is a strong one, implies a political expression of the grief and the Jews which accompanied her also wailing, we are told, as our English version puts it, that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And again, when some of the Jews, remarking on his own manifestation of grief and tears, expressed their wonder that he who had opened the eyes of the blind could not have preserved Lazarus from death, we are told that Jesus again groaned in himself. The natural suggestion of the word groan is, however, that of pain or sorrow, not disapprobation. And its rendering of the term in question is therefore misleading. It is better rendered in the only remaining passage in which it occurs in the New Testament, Mark fourteen five, by murmured, though this is much too weak a word to reproduce its implications. In that passage, it is brought into close connection with the kindred term, which determines its meaning. We read, but there were some that had indignation among themselves, and they murmured against her. Their feeling of irritated displeasure expressed itself in an outburst of temper. The margin of our revised version at John eleven thirty three and 38, therefore, very properly proposes that we should, for groaned in these passages, substitute moved, with indignation, although that phrase too is scarcely strong enough. What John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief but of irrepressible anger. He did respond to the spectacle of human sorrow, abandoning in itself to its unrestrained expression with quite sympathetic tears. Jesus wept, verse 36, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. The expression even of this rage, however, was strongly curbed. The term which John employs to describe it is, as we have seen, a definitely external term. He raged. John modifies this external sense by annexed qualifications. He raged in spirit, raged in himself. He thus interiorizes the term and gives us to understand that the ebullition of Jesus' anger expended itself within him. Not that there was no manifestation of it, It must have been observable to be observed and recorded. It formed a marked feature of the occurrences seen and heard. But John gives us to understand that the external expression of our Lord's fury was markedly restrained. Its manifestation fell far short of its real intensity. He even traces for us the movements of his inward struggle. Jesus, therefore, when he saw her wailing and the Jews that had come with her, wailing, was enraged in spirit and troubled himself, and wept. His inwardly restrained fury produced a profound agitation of his whole being, one of the manifestations of which was tears. Why did the sight of the wailing of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus? Certainly not because of the extreme violence of its expression, and even more certainly not because it argued unbelief, unwillingness to submit to God's providential ordering or distrust of Jesus's power to save, he himself wept, if with less violence yet in true sympathy, with the grief of which he was witness. The intensity of his exasperation, moreover, would be disproportionate to such a cause, and the importance attached to it in the account bids us seek its ground in something less incidental to the main drift of the narrative. It is mentioned twice and is obviously emphasized as an indispensable element in the development of the story, on which in its due place and degree the lesson of the incident hangs. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions and raised Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny as John Calvin on verse 38 phrases it. In Mary's grief, he contemplates still to adopt John Calvin's words on verse 33, the general misery of the whole human race, and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. An extinguishable fury ceases upon him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed, and his heart, if not his lips, cry out. For the innumerable dead is my soul disquieted. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The reason of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed it is presented throughout the whole narrative. Compare especially verses 24 to 26. A decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against a foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption.